Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is episode number 20 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, June the 29th. First, I'll be talking to John Engelhardt, Senior Vice President of Riverbed Asia Pacific and Japan. Riverbed is a leader in application performance infrastructure. He'll be talking all about how we can improve government digital services. They have a long way to go. And then I have a chat with economist Nicholas Grian. We'll be talking about why economists keep getting their forecasts so wrong. But first, let's talk to John Engelhardt. Now, John Engelhardt, tell us about Riverbed's analysis of government digital services. You find, obviously, there's some room for improvement. I, look, I, I think everybody would say, you know, and you've got to be careful how, uh, uh, you know, when you ask an open question like that, everybody would say the government should always improve. But I think there's, uh, well, all, all governments, whether it's Australia or globally, are uh, obviously making a big push towards digital services uh, and e-citizen e services. Uh, and so I think one of the areas we decided to take a look at uh, was how are governments uh, faring when it comes to digital initiatives and digital transformation 
a big part of our business, probably about 30, maybe a little bit over 30% of our business is with governments, whether it's federal, whether it's state, even local governments. Uh, and with the the big, uh, I, I guess, it, look at Australia, a lot of the uh, talk around NBN and some of the initiatives, uh, there's, a, there's obviously a, a great awareness of, well, uh, digital services, digital initiatives are going to be an important part of uh, uh, our community to come forward. So we wanted to understand what were the citizens thinking, what were the users really thinking, because it's an area that's very closely aligned to what Riverbed does. We're all about driving user experience and figure, well, let's not just talk to the government, let's talk to what the citizens are and get some feedback around that. And yeah, we've got some interesting feedback, Leon, uh, that you know, people, there's this paradox you'd say out there that uh, uh, governments are actively trying to push a lot more of their services online. Uh, but it came out of our study was about 47% of uh, the respondents said they were happy, um, and you'd look at the access rates of only 50% access quarterly. Less, than, you know, you'd look at that 30% are accessing services online fortnightly, and you contrast that to the private sector where we're looking at services such as banking or utilities or telcos. We, we, we're accessing them daily, weekly, uh, on a much more frequent basis. So, uh, I think there's a lot of room for uh, improvement, a lot of room for focus on also what the users want out of the services rather than just pushing a service down the line to uh, down the line to uh, citizens or users now that's a fascinating observation because what that suggests is that the government digital services need to actually be looking at what they're actually offering people to make sure that they access it more often would that be right i think there's some um, Always interesting lessons that you learn from private industry uh, and and a lot of other, or I guess globally and private industry as well. And you say that uh, you, you take banking uh, and you look back at uh, a lot of uh, people. When we part of our survey, we said, well, where should the government learn from? And banking rated very highly. I think almost fifty percent of the respondents said that banking is an area where they get good service. But if we go, we roll the clock back maybe two years or three years. Uh, banking was pretty rudimentary. Now we've uh, seen uh, not just the, the major banks, but we've seen fintechs offering you know a vast array of uh, highly engageable services. Uh, the simplicity of paying paying bills, transferring money. I found out this morning that on iOS 11 or something that I can just text a message to somebody and transfer money uh, as well. So I think what we learn from that, it's not just making uh, saying something's available online, but making it easy to consume. And an equally important part of it is once yeah you know, once the data and the information's there, actually ensuring the performance uh, is there as well. I think uh, one thing we learned from private industry and seen is that a lot of initially a lot of the user performance was was secondary. It was how nice did my app look. Um, but what we see though is that a lot of people will stop using it um, you know, if uh, if performance is slow, uh, both in public sector and private sector people stop using the app. Um, and so I think there's a, a lot that can be learned from that. But it would suggest that uh, the private sector, like banks, for example, are much more in tune with uh, uh, being there for the customer. Um, so you obviously one is a, in a competitive environment and your differentiator is uh, how you engage with your customers. 
Uh, and so if you look at, at the public sector, I think there's a different motivator driving it. There is only one tax department and one at DHS and one uh, Bureau of Stats and one everything else, right? And so uh, uh, how you, you know, what's the value you're delivering is not necessarily a competitive uh, situation. Uh, and so you've got to look at how do I make the lives of my citizens easier? How do I actually get them to drive, uh, drive usage on there that may uh, actually allow them to meet their needs easier than going into a physical location or you know, sending traditional emails. But you're right. I think there's, there, there is a need to look at uh, what the user wants out of the application to drive a greater usage and a greater experience. And, I mean, this is, this is interesting because uh, you have to ask, what are the biggest turnoffs for people accessing government services? Is it slow response times? Is it uh, they have to put in background information? I mean, why, what, what are the biggest turnoffs? So I think one of the things that came out in our study, uh, and I mentioned before that uh, over 30% of uh, the respondents turned around and said they'll stop using it because it's slow. Uh, and I was having a com- conversation last night with uh, uh, you know, an executive from one of the banks, and they're saying the same issue that they were facing is that if uh, – there was a poor response from an application. People would stop using it very quickly. And so so I think overall performance is a big issue. I think it's the simplicity of access. Uh, if you look at what uh, a lot of uh, uh, users are asking for, it's the simple things such as a single sign-on. And I know that there are some initiatives in place at the moment, like GovPass ID in Australia, to do that. I live up in Singapore where they've crossed that hurdle of single sign-on so I can use my national ID for every single service. They still haven't got the quality of service below that. Um, but we, so we see single sign-on is uh, people want to be have one of the other hurdles is they want to have better uh, engagements. They want reminders and, and uh, whether it's email or text to say, hey, I, uh, you know, you've got something due. It could be a property tax. It could be a uh, some forms you need to submit. But I think it's also... Um, Getting the, as you mentioned, getting that information, the background information. People don't want to be spending time putting that information and duplicating it over and over and over again. But there was, you know, and everyone kind of says that there's well, people will be concerned about putting information uh, into giving more information to the government. But it was quite ironic that the uh, feedback that said um, a lot of our uh, the respondents said they would be happy to share more information. Yeah, and also, if they got a good experience, they actually said, well, we'd be happy to advocate for uh, the government service as well. So that it, there, there has been a mind shift, I think, that uh, um, that people are concerned about uh, the information. I think the one thing they did say is that we want security and we want speed of access uh, in there. Right, right. But uh, what you're saying is that they're prepared to share more personal data with the government in exchange for a more streamlined, integrated service. Correct, yeah. And uh, so that uh, there is, I, I was surprised by that and it's very positive that people are, uh, uh, are actually willing to do that. I think we make progress as a society if we're willing to, uh, you know, obviously we have to have a, a fundamental base that what we're putting in there is secure. Uh, it's uh, accessed only in the right manner and, uh, the, the, and it's not distributed without ever, anyone knowing about it. But, uh, you know, generally Australian citizens came back with the ones we surveyed saying they're happy to share more, uh, but they want better performance. Uh, they, don't, they want a better experience both in how the data and how the information is presented, but also the, the general performance and being able to access it from different places, not just 
having to do it at home on your uh, uh, on a web browser at home, but could be done on a, a tablet, could be done on a specific app as well. But that would suggest, wouldn't it, that uh, Australians actually demonstrate a fair level of trust in public sector digital services, wouldn't it? Well, they, they do. So Australia, uh, there was a survey by uh, a UN eGov survey that ranked Australia second, um, <clears throat> I think, behind Great Britain uh, in the level of services that, that they're being delivered. Um, and, and I think part of that, <coughs> excuse me, of that <coughs> cold for a week, um, but so part of that is obviously that there, there is a history and there's a level of sophistication to the services. Uh, and I do believe people uh, have crossed that hurdle of uh, trust. And it, and it, it, it is, uh, I think you would look at it, it is a, a trailing behind the uh, uh, behind a lot of the private sectors. And so not just banks and telcos, but uh, we now share a lot more information, whether it's from social media, whether it's uh, other online apps, etc. We are more comfortable as a society sharing information with organisations that we trust uh, and have a credible brand. And uh, generally, the Australian government, uh, I think, it maintains you know, a very high profile, both with its own citizens on uh, you know, its focus on success and driving digital initiatives, but also globally ranked you know, very highly uh, in, in the world second, in fact, on um, uh, uh, in that survey. Well, that would suggest, wouldn't it, that the government needs to do a lot of uh, forward thinking now in its approach and uh, actually start looking at uh, uh, all those issues and all those strategies. Um, oh, absolutely. And, uh, and, and I guess a common theme of, uh, when I talk to governments or talk to businesses uh, is really that everybody needs to have a digital transformation initiative or strategy out there. I don't think uh, th- there is a, an opportunity for someone to say, well, I'll sit back and watch what happens. Uh, uh, the, the digital uh, engagement uh, has become incredi- incredibly more uh, sophisticated and complicated uh, over a period of time. And when I say complicated, not necessarily the apps, but the level of uh, activities that we can do and what we can complete without ever even going... Um, you know, taking a traditional phone call or going into an office out there. Uh, and so it's not just digitising uh, the way you engage with a government agency. It's a total digital transformation. And I, I think there, there are organisations looking at how can we develop and deliver better uh, health services, for example, uh, completely transforming the way the health industry uh, is managed through digital means uh, as well. But it is we, we do see that it is on a lot of the government agencies have very clear digital uh, transformation policies. I think it was uh, the South Australian government that even put some legislation into place to say that the digital initiatives uh, bill as well. So uh, it is on the it is on the radar. Um, I think there's one area, Leon, what I would uh, that I think from a riverbed perspective that uh, we continue to talk to our customers, including government, about is don't just think about uh, what's the application and what's the data. Think about the underlying performance and the user experience. A big part of uh, delivering a good experience and engagement is the user experience uh, and the underlying platform. Uh, And and, topics such as... um, uh, as the NBN continue to come up, uh, and I think that they're good to have those debates because what it does is pushes out that you know, people do want to act, uh, want to have a better broadband, want to have a better network, better user experience overall. Indeed, and uh, and if it means government agencies have to start thinking more like banks, that's all for the better good. 
No, I, I agree. Uh, and that, that did come out in the survey that uh, people like dealing with banks. Uh, they, you know, they like dealing with banks because they find uh, it's easier. Uh, I think what it does has for banks and will for governments will change the way that they deliver their services. And you can see in you know, banking that the t- typical branch uh, business is now uh, changing significantly, that very few of us go into a, a physical branch anymore. And I think the same as you look at a lot of whether it's health or you know, social services or those types of organisations, that being able to do more online at our control and our time, uh, whether it's late at night, whether you're travelling somewhere else, um, you know, will be uh, better for people, uh, but they they want a a more round or richer engagement rather than just a simple transactional engagement. Well, John Engelsart, uh, thank you very much for your time and wishing you all the best for River Technologies. That's fantastic, uh, fascinating information. Thank you. Leon, Leon, thank you. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Grian. Nicholas Greer, an economist had had a spectacularly bad record at forecasting. Many failed to predict the global financial crisis. What's your assessment of this, and how has this happened? Uh, well, I guess there, there are a lot of ways to respond to that. One is if you could predict a crisis, then it would already have happened, if you know what I mean, because uh, people would be watching around for the predictions. But it's certainly, I think, a bit of an indictment that there wasn't uh, – there wasn't a sort of a sense of wariness at the amount of leverage that had been built up by the time of the global financial crisis. And in fact, at Jackson Hole, a big uh, annual conference of the Fed in 2006, I think, I don't think it was 2007, a a very senior economist, uh, and I'm trying to remember his name, Rajam uh, someone, uh, basically put this view that the world financial system was becoming more leveraged and there was uh you know a lot of risk that might if if that risk hadn't been properly distributed and was in fact you know in fact it was sort of aggregating risk rather than distributing risk then we were in a lot of trouble and he was um fairly aggressively put down by people like Larry Summers uh so that that's a bit of a that's a bit of a um window on the sociology of the discipline if you like everyone's trying to be so clever uh and there's a fair bit of groupthink that goes on that's one thought the other is that uh you know economics is a funny discipline and a lot of economic theory is not very closely connected to reality most of the ways in which macro modeling was done then and is mostly done now is using macro models that don't have a financial system. Now, that's just bizarre and crazy because it's the financial system that's such an important part of the economic cycle. Um, So there's a lot to say there. Then there's lots of other things to say, like most – we never – we don't uh, tie our forecasters down to – predictions which we can then interrogate after the event and find out how correct they were. What I mean by that is that if I tell you that growth will be 3.25% next year, I haven't told you my degree of confidence that I'm giving you that forecast. If I did, I'd have to give you a range. I might have to say I'm 40% confident that it'll be within uh, 0.25% of that figure uh, and so on. And then we could compare 
my forecasts against what happens as time passes. We don't do any of those things. So what we've got is we've got a kind of entertainment show and a show in which people swim, you know, the big fish swim around and say, well, my forecasts are this and all the business people turn up to find the forecasts of the central bank and so on. But nobody's marking any of this stuff to market. Nobody's finding out how much uh, real information is in these forecasts. Finally, the other reason we so rarely predict recessions is that recessions are um, uh, rare events. So if you're not going, so, so even in 2007 or eight, if we reran the, you know, if we reran the world, not exactly, you know, in a probabilistic sense, maybe it's true that there was still less than 50% chance of a recession in uh, looking at 2008. There might well have been less than a 50% chance of recession in 2009. It's just that a series of events happened, like Bear Stearns going down, uh, uh, Lehman Brothers, AIG, and so on, and that triggered the recession. That might have happened in a year or two's time. Now, what's the significance of that? The fact is that because we're not getting forecasters to say what they, you know, the chances of what they're forecasting, then no, it's not really in anyone's interests to ever forecast a recession because it's unlikely their their bet will come in. The recession's always an outsider, and if the odds are the same on all the bets, you're not going to bet on the outsider, if, if that makes any sense. Now, the issue is that forecasting doesn't seem to be evidence-based, which leads yeah. to another important question <laughs> of how important is it to be able to measure these forecasts? Well, that's that's the that's the essence of it. So when Philip Tetlock... Uh, who many of your listeners will have heard of, uh, he he got interested in this and he got interested in it in the area of forecasting political events. And he asked himself the question, how much might a Russia, a scholar of Russia and international relations, uh, how much might they, their expertise add to their forecasts? And their forecasts might be of the way the Russian economy will go next year or whether... Um, Mikhail Gorbachev will still be the uh, secretary of the Communist Party in uh, 1987. This, let's say, a forecast in 1986. Now, once you realize that you want to actually measure how accurate these forecasts are, you're not going to accept the normal kind of punditry, which is not very distinguishable from astrology in the sense that it will say something like, Mr. Gorbachev will come under a lot of pressure next year. Well, thanks very much. What does that tell us? Uh, so you need to tie forecasts down to very specific uh, statements of what will occur and then very specific statements of the expected level of confidence. And uh, that's what we uh, – and, and political forecasting had never really done that until Philip Tetlock came along and – published expert political judgment in 2005 uh, and in many ways eco amazingly enough all these um, quants in economics all these people who fancy themselves as being very rigorous and very good with numbers it doesn't happen in economics you can compare that with weather forecasting what do weather what does the what do you remember from the weather last weather forecast you heard it would something like the the weather you know the bureau of meteorology uh forecast 90% chance of rain 
that is a form in which you can interrogate that after the event and say, let's have a look at all the times last year when the Bureau of Meteorology forecast a 90% chance of rain. Let's say there are 20 of those occasions. We want there to be about 18 of those uh, forecasts that turned out to come within the 90% range. We want 18 of those 20 days to have rain on them, and then we'll know that the Bureau of Meteorology is telling us exactly what they know. And we are a long way from that in economics. Pretty amazing, eh? Should we be more focused on forecasting risks? So I think it makes more sense to focus on forecasting risks rather than point forecasts like 2.75%. If you go back to my example of weather data, we forecast risks of rain and things like that. So I think we should try to focus on the the you know the the changing chances over time for instance that there will be a recession next year now that's easily said it's difficult to do because the data that we get on whether our forecasts were right or not only turn up once in a while Uh, they only turn up once every 10 years if you have a recession roughly once every 10 years What I think we can do in response to that is we can do the sort of thing that Philip Tetlock did, which is to try to get forecasters to forecast lots of things that we can measure um, more often than one in every 10 years. And then we're starting to qualify people we think we can believe more. And then we can start taking more notice of their forecasts of things which we can't scientifically test for some time. There are anyway. I think there are ways of doing this if we try to re- understand that the problem is to try to have a good, if you like, market for the reputation of forecasters. And at the moment, it's not much better than a footy, uh, than a footy tipping competition. There's not much information in there. There's a lot of role playing. Uh, A lot of people are trying hard, but we're not really much good at sorting out the sheep from the goats. Well, Nicholas Gruen, that would uh, assume a massive rethink of forecasting and quite profound insights. Thank you very much for your time. All right. No worries. Thanks a lot, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, Bank of America Merrill Lynch analyst Michelle Meyer has written a note indicating that a major global trade war would lead to, in her words, a significant reduction in growth. A resulting drop in confidence coupled with supply chain disruptions could work to heighten the damage, she said, potentially leading to an outright recession. While she wrote that the bank views that the probability of full-blown trade war as low, she noted that the risks are rising and the possibility remains a key uncertainty. And the global trade war is about to get worse, as the rules-based system of international commerce is poised to revert to an environment where the strong impose their will upon the weak, according to an internal memo circulated among European Union governments. The disputes between the US and its closest trading partners are set to escalate in the coming months, as more unilateral measures are threatened and imposed, leading in some cases to countermeasures or to mercantilist deeds, according to the memo drafted by the European Commission, which manages trade policy for the entire bloc. And the memo says, Our world will go back to a trading environment where rules are only enforced where convenient and where strength replaces rules as a basis for trade relations. 
The dire warnings come as the exports-based European economic model risks crumbling under pressure from President Donald Trump, who has sought to narrow the US trade deficit at all costs, even if that means an unravelling of global rules. After imposing punitive tariffs on steel and aluminium imports from Europe, Trump now threatens a 20% levy on European cars in a measure that will deal a massive blow to the EU's auto industry. And Donald Trump's trade rows are starting to backfire, with high-profile manufacturer Harley-Davidson announcing that tit-for-tat tariffs had forced it to shift manufacturing away from the US, pacing Wall Street trading lower in this week's sessions. Harley-Davidson revealed it would relocate production of European-bound motorcycles to Asia and South America to avoid passing on the cost of European Union tariffs to customers. Mr Trump blasted the 115-year-old Wisconsin company over its plans, and he threatened to tax them like never before. Now, Europe this month increased tariffs on US-made motorcycles to 31%, that's up from 6%, in retaliation to President Trump's import taxes on foreign steel and aluminium. And to Australia. And house prices here will remain flat across the country. And in some markets, they might even slip, according to BIS Oxford Economics. In its latest report, Residential Property Prospects 2018-2021, to the Economics Agency has added its voice to the growing number of forecasts that the nation's housing market is softening. The report says tighter investor lending and a growing pool of new housing stock will weigh on the real estate market and prices. And it shows that every major housing market in the country, except for Hobart, had recorded a slowdown in price growth over 2017-18. And in Australia's two biggest markets, Sydney and Melbourne, prices are heading down. In Sydney, BIS predicts house prices will fall by 2% over the next financial year. And the report forecasts modest price declines in most Australian capital cities, taking inflation into account. And it forecasts median apartment prices falling 4% this financial year and a further 3% in 2018-19. Now, last week's passage of the Turnbull government's $144 billion worth of tax cuts and the Australian market reaching its highest level in 10 years has failed to inspire consumers. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index has slipped 0.6% to a reading of 121.4. The reason for the fall was a sharp decrease in views towards financial conditions over the next five years. That slumped by 6.5%. The survey also showed that the four-week moving average had ticked up to 120.8, the highest in four months. Now, Bill Shorten has pledged to repeal tax cuts for firms earning between $10 million and $50 million as the Turnbull government continues efforts to try to secure Senate support for tax cuts for Australia's biggest companies. After months of declining to reveal Labor's position, the Labor leader told journalists on Tuesday he would repeal the already legislated tax cuts for firms earning between $10 million and $50 million without running that decision past the caucus or the shadow cabinet. The Turnbull government is aiming to mobilise business against the new Labor policy in a bid to warn 20,000 small employers, including local supermarkets, service stations, mechanics, family businesses, about the hit to their fortunes under a change of government. Mr Shorten sparked a political furor over his policy pledge, with critics accusing him of a captain's call that was made without consulting his shadow cabinet or the wider Labor caucus. And industry chiefs say they want an urgent meeting with the opposition leader out of concern the move will be a blow to confidence that could set tax reform back a decade. 
The Australian Securities and Investments Commission has launched federal court action against AMP financial planning. The lawsuit alleges AMP allowed its planners to get clients to cancel life, TPD, trauma and or income protection insurance policies. Rather than transferring the existing policies, they were sold similar replacement policies. By advising clients to submit new applications, the financial planners took to stood to receive higher commissions than they would have received under a transfer, while at the same time exposing the clients unnecessarily to underwriting and associated risks, ASIC said. ASIC's statement of claim under, identifies this occurring on six occasions. Each contravention is in breach of Section 961L of the Act, which attracts a maximum penalty of $1 million. ASIC will argue that AMP Financial Planning knew or ought to have known that its authorised financial plannings were engaged in rewriting conduct and did nothing to stop it. ASIC will use files from a number of AMP planners, including Rommel Panganimban, who was permanently banned by ASIC from providing financial services in 2016. The case is listed for a directions hearing in Sydney on the 27th of July 2018. Now, grocery wholesaler Metcash will undertake a $125 million off-market share buyback, but its core supermarkets operations have been feeling the pinch from fierce competition from heavyweights Coles and Woolworths and discounter Aldi. Retail sales across the IGA retail network declined 0.9% on a like-for-like basis for the 12 months to April 30, 2018. Metcash reported a bottom-line loss of $149.5 million for the 12 months because of the impact of impairments of goodwill of $346 million on a post-tax basis, which had previously been announced. And that compared with a net profit after tax of $171.9 million a year ago. Metcash shares have dropped 24% since late May in the wake of revelations that Drake's, a major South Australian independent supermarket chain, plans to move to a self-supply arrangement from mid-2019. The shares were at $3.68 on May the 25th. They're now at $2.79. Now, Commonwealth Bank of Australia plans to demerge its wealth management and mortgage broking businesses, CFS Group, and undertake a strategic review of its general insurance business, including a potential sale. CFS Group will include CBA's Colonial First State, Colonial First State Global Asset Management, Count Financial, Financial Wisdom, and Aussie Home Loans. This frees up capital and leaves CBA more narrowly focused on retail and business banking. And the Royal Commission into Banking has heard ANZ admitting several instances of misconduct and conduct falling below community standards with its agricultural customers. In her opening remarks for the fourth round of Royal Commission hearings this week, Senior Counsel Assisting Rowena Orr QC said ANZ acknowledged in a small number of cases its conduct to former customers of Landmark, whose loan book it bought in 2010, may have breached the code of banking practice to act fairly and reasonably towards its customers. Now, less than 4%, or 268 submissions, of the 6,892 submissions received by the Commission relate to agricultural finance. And of those, 32 related to the ANZ acquisition of Landmark in 2010. Now, Dreamworld could face a history-making compensation payout for the devastated families in the Thunder River Rapids tragedy, as well as the park guests and staff who witness it. In what has the potential to be the country's largest ever compensation payout over the fatal ride malfunction which killed four people in 2016, the theme park's possible lawsuits could run into the millions. 
Distraught relatives have laid the blame for their loved ones' deaths solely on the Gold Coast theme park. Lawyers said Dreamworld could not only be sued by the families, but also by traumatised patrons and staff because it breached its duty of care. Both Roger Singh, National Special Counsel with Shine Lawyers, and Bill Potts from Potts Lawyers told the media they would expect the claims to run into the many millions. This coincides with the news that Dreamworld executives stopped spending money on repairs and maintenance in the months before the fatal accident at the Gold Coast theme park. An inquest into the October 2016 deaths of Sydney mother Cindy Lowe, Canberra visitor Katie Goodchild, her brother Luke Dorset, and his partner Ruzi Iragi was on Monday shown minutes from an exclusive meeting that revealed the spending cutbacks. And BHP has settled a $7.1 billion lawsuit over a 2015 dam disaster at its Samarco operations in Brazil, and it's established a framework to settle a second $55 billion claim in the next two years. BHP and Brazilian iron ore giant Vale, which co-owned the Samarco iron ore mine, said that a new deal with prosecutors from the federal government and the states of Minas Gerais and Espirito Santo will extinguish a 20 billion real or $7.1 billion legal claim related to the dam failure that killed 19 people and destroyed several communities. And finally, the battle for control of Atlas Iron has turned nasty with Andrew Forrest Fortescue Metals Group accusing Gina Reinhardt's Hancock prospecting of misleading statements and material emissions in its bidder's statement for the junior miner. A Fortescue subsidiary, NCZ Investments, has called on the takeovers panel to intervene and make orders that prevent Gina Reinhardt's Hancock from dispatching its bidder's statements or releasing any further information to the market while the panel considers the application. And it wants Hancock to be restricted from acquiring any further shares in Atlas until, in their words, further corrective disclosure is released. The panel has not yet decided whether to conduct proceedings into Fortescue's applications and it's making no comment. Hancock Prospecting said in a statement it would talk to the panel to explain its position. And that's it for this week. And next week we have a terrific interview with University of New South Wales academic Karen Sanders. And she'll be talking to us all about sexual harassment and the Me Too movement and its impact on business. In the meantime, you can keep up with Talking Business on Twitter at TalkingBizBOZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.